This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It is a repetitive process. It's a predictable process. Worry says, oh, no, oh, no. Amygdala says, I got your back. System is activated. Anxiety starts. And anxiety, meaning all the physical symptoms that can show up, the tummy ache, the fear, the crying, everything that your body does to try and protect you from an emergency. It's a false alarm, and the amygdala needs some help rejiggering the system because the amygdala learns from experience and it holds on to those messages. We've got to offer some new information. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. All right, everybody. As promised, here's the meat of the sandwich. This is the puzzle piece. We're going through these seven puzzle pieces. We've done expect to worry. We've done externalize the worry. Now we're going to talk about getting unsure and uncomfortable on purpose. And if you thought talking to your kids about externalizing their worry pissed them off, wait till you hear about this one. Yeah, people might want the vegan version of this. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. It's the meat of the sandwich, but we're going to go with like a portobello mushroom to start. Yeah, it's got some meaty flavor, but it's not really all meat. The two previous puzzle pieces are sort of laying the groundwork. And this one is how we take it into action. This is how we begin to practice it. And this is how we really begin to lay down some new pathways in the brain and how we really are retraining the amygdala. So how do you do that? Well, it's got to be done experientially. The way that worry works and the way that worry keeps you trapped is that worry convinces your brain and your body that what you are experiencing is an emergency. And so what we have to do is we have to step into situations where discomfort shows up. We have to step into situations in which there's uncertainty, and we have to hang out in it long enough for the brain to begin to relearn that it's actually not an emergency. So this is a process. This is an experiential process. This is what, if we were talking about it therapeutically, this is what exposure therapy looks like. But we're going to add some extra juice to this that's really going to increase your ability as a parent, increase your family, to really break out of these worry patterns. Okay, so let me just give you a little basic tutorial about how this worry thing works in the brain and the body. The prefrontal cortex, that's where we think, that's where we imagine, that's where we worry. That's up in the front of your brain, that's behind your, right up there in your forehead, that's your higher level thinking. And then you've got this other part of your brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is your little alarm system. It's little, but it packs a punch. It's very primitive. It learns by what it's told. It learns from what it's told and from experiences and your interpretation of experiences. So the poor little amygdala back there does not differentiate between real danger and imagined danger. It is listening for signals from you, from the environment, to determine whether or not it needs to get your fight-or-fight system activated. So as we're dealing with worry, we're going to expect worry to show up. We've externalized it. We've given it a name. We're calling it Sally. We're calling it Pete. Now what we want to do is we have to experientially practice stepping into situations so worry shows up. This is the paradoxical 
and often completely counterintuitive thing that people miss. Because what they want to do is they want to create certainty and they want to create comfort. They want to make sure that their children aren't triggered. I get that. Schools want to make sure that they accommodate the anxiety. The whole goal becomes to make sure that the worry doesn't show up so that the amygdala isn't fired off so you don't have this big response. And what that does, unfortunately, is it just creates a very clear, repetitive, easily triggered pathway for a child to be activated, anxious, alarm systems, fight or flight, etc. You talked about an example in another episode recently where there was this cute little first or second grader, you know, she was very resistant mm-hmm. to go to school. And then she started going early and having like a little coloring session with her teacher. And it was all going well. And there was this routine mm-hmm. to keep her very comfortable. And then the teacher got she pregnant. She broke her arm. Broke her she arm slipped or... down the ice and broke her elbow. So then all, all hell, hell broke, broke loose. loose. Yeah. It made sense, right? We want to make sure that we don't fire off her alarm system. We want to make sure that she doesn't get upset. We want to make sure that we don't activate this anxious response. And that absolutely makes sense, of course. But the problem is, is then we solidify the pattern of avoidance. Avoidance makes problems worse. What we want to do is now that we've learned about this worry thing, now that your children have a name for it, you have a name for it, we want to take the worry part out into the world. We want to activate the worry for the purpose of responding differently because every time that you respond differently, the amygdala gets new data. So the goal is to provide the amygdala with new data because remember, worry's mantra is, you can't handle it. And the amygdala says, oh, this is an emergency. What happens when people worry is that they create emergencies. This is not an emergency. If there is an emergency, which is why many kids have said, can I just have my amygdala removed? No. If there is an emergency, you want your amygdala. It's there. Worry is not about handling real emergencies. Anxiety is not about handling real emergencies. Anxiety and worry are the anticipation, the imagination, the creation of emergencies that then get you to back off from doing things. Just like you were talking about your catastrophic thinking when we talked about that with externalizing the worry. I can imagine a lot of families, they've listened to this and now this is the third step. The first two steps, they're like, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. We want to normalize worry. We want to talk about it. We Mm -hmm. want to be sympathetic and compassionate to worry. Sure, we're going to name this kid's part, but there are a lot of people who I bet in this process, then this is where the needle on the record player Mm -hmm. scratches because they're like, but my school and her team and her Mm -hmm. IEP or her 504. Yep. Or her 504. All of that has been, we've been trying to accommodate Mm -hmm. and make her comfortable. You're telling us that wasn't (laughs) right. Yes, I am. Look, and it's totally, I get it. It's totally intuitive that you would want to do that. The problem is that you are then solidifying the patterns that make this thing stronger because the amygdala continues to learn and it learns that something is dangerous. And the way it learns that something is dangerous is either because something dangerous happened right? So if you had a mishap, if you crashed on your bike, if you got lost at the mall or whatever, right? Things happen. The amygdala learns that things are dangerous, but it also learns that things are dangerous by repeated stories, by perceiving the world as a more dangerous place, anticipating and talking about all the bad things that could happen. It really, the amygdala learns by our perceptions and our reactions, not just reality, not just reality. So I'll give you an example. And this is an example that I used in the book and it actually happened to me. So when I was in graduate school, I was on the T. I went to school in Boston. I was on the T. I stop at the grocery store to get some food for dinner when I get home and I go into my backpack and my wallet is gone. 
So somebody pickpocketed me on the tee. Now, in that moment, I have two options as I reach into my bag and see that my wallet is gone. I can either freak out, panic, oh my God, of course I had that feelings, you know, like, oh my gosh, somebody pickpocketed me. And now I can either decide that I am going to avoid going on the tee. I'm going, I can decide that I am going to drop out of school. I can decide all sorts of things, or I can say, this is a problem that needs to be solved. I can recognize that having my backpack on my back where I can't see what's going on back there is a bad plan on the subway. I can shift things. I've got to go get my license. I've got to go replace the stuff that's gotten lost. But I'm not going to treat it as an emergency that then is going to prevent me from stepping into my life. And when people are catastrophizing, that pattern in families becomes very, very pervasive. And the stepping out, the reassuring, the making sure they're comfortable, that becomes a way of life. And we have to do the opposite. And it can feel totally weird to do that. An example might be with a younger child is my child is afraid to sleep in their bed by themselves. And so we've moved a mattress into the bedroom and the child now sleeps on the floor next to us because she has created in her little imagination and we have supported it that something terrible is going to happen while she's sleeping. And so we want to step in, step in, step in. Now, in order for a child to step in, in order for a family to step in, they have to have some understanding of why we're doing it, of what the purpose is. And when we talk about retraining the amygdala, here's what you want to say to your kids. You have trained, your worry has trained your amygdala that doing X is dangerous, that seeing X is dangerous. We have to retrain your amygdala. Your poor little amygdala is sitting back there thinking, ah, I can't handle this. We've got to take the amygdala out for a walk. We've got to show the amygdala that we can be uncomfortable, we can be uncertain, and we can still handle it. You've talked about, I think, one of our earlier episodes when we talked about Mm -hmm. picky eating. You made a point that with a family where one of the child's anxiety is just dominating all the decisions, in time, that family lives a smaller Mm -hmm. and smaller life, smaller and smaller footprint because the anxiety pushes away so much new that it's clamped down on one restaurant to eat out at, one way to do this, one way to do that. So it's a very closed life. Yeah, because what happens is the worry takes over all of these reactions and the poor amygdala is just under the impression that there's one emergency after the other. The amygdala cannot say, oh, please, right? We're going to a restaurant. Oh, please, riding the school bus is not an emergency. It doesn't say that. The only thing the amygdala says is, I've been told there's an emergency. I'm going to respond accordingly. And so the way that we begin to reverse that pattern or modify that pattern is to step into a situation, allow the amygdala to hang out so the amygdala begins to get new data. But we've got to coach kids through that. We've got to let them know what we're doing. We've got to say, when we step into this, your poor amygdala has been told by your worry that this is an emergency. So let's check this out. Let's come up with some experiments. Let's do some things that on purpose make the worry show up and have a different conversation so that the amygdala can say, hey, wait a second. You told me that this was an emergency. We're talking to the worry and the amygdala. We're saying, worry, I'm not playing your game anymore. Not getting sucked into this. And then the amygdala is like, hey, wait, now that's different. That doesn't sound the same that it usually sounds. So think about that, and we'll be right back. You know when you're listening to a song on the radio, and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you, or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship, and that Songfinch writes just for you. 
Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique. It's personal and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Okay, we're back. Can I just say as someone who has lived in New York City for a long time, I want to share this skill with you. And anyone else who needs to hear it. Okay. If you were on public transportation and you are not a city dweller where there's, you know, you're used to that. What you do if you have a backpack on is you take your backpack off and you put it at your feet and you have the backpack facing forward. Mm -hmm. If you have a suitcase, you have the suitcase between your feet and you have the opening zipper facing forward so that if anyone wants to access a large bag, you're going to see them bend Mm -hmm. down and then they can't do it. Right. I just thought I should share that skill for anyone who's traveling to a city they don't usually live in this summer. Well, and that's what I learned, right? Because I hadn't lived in a city. When I went to graduate school in Boston, this was my first living in a big city. So that happened to me, and somebody said to me exactly that. They said, you don't leave your backpack on your back. If you're going to carry your backpack, put it in front of you, down in front of you, so that it's it's right there, Somebody has to come face to face with you in order to take your stuff. And that's why in New York, most people, like if you're riding the subway and you have to hold on, you put your bag between your legs. Right. And you'll notice if someone bends over. Right. Right. Then it's no longer within arm's length of people too. 
And that's the difference between problem solving and emergent avoiding. Say you were sending your daughter off to live in the city. You could either say to her, now look, I don't want you to go on the subway. It's dangerous. There are people on there, blah, 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 right? And you could just scare the crap out of her. Or you could say, when you're on the subway, this is what you do. And you give her the information. And of course, there are situations, we don't have to do everything. There are situations that can be avoided for sure. But what I'm talking about is as you're moving through life, being able to tolerate a certain amount of risk, being able to activate problem solving, and also being able to recognize that when you step into a new situation and worry shows up and worry does its thing, even if you get a little activated because you still have an amygdala, it doesn't turn into an emergency. I think of so many families, let's say they don't really have big anxiety issues, like worries there, right? Because every family has it. But let's say this is a family that still tries new things, takes risks, etc. Because there is a culture in that family that adventure and taking risks or trying new things is promoted. Mm-hmm. But the families that are seeing you that have, in fact, really shut down and closed off because they're trying to avoid all of these anxiety emergencies of their kids, Mm -hmm. how long does it take to make progress where you're starting to crack open that anxiety stranglehold? It varies widely, for sure. One of the things that makes the biggest difference is whether or not the parents trust this process. If the parents trust the process, and if the parents can tolerate a certain amount of distress, because when you start doing this, the goal is, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, the goal is to step into things that make you feel worried. If parents can do that, if they can do it with love and encouragement, if they're really doing a good job at being consistent with the language, then we can see changes. You know, within a few months, we get kids that weren't able to get on the school bus or weren't able to go to school. We can see them start moving into things again. If there's inconsistency, you said earlier, sort of screeching sound of the the needle dragging across the thing, that happens in my office. As soon as I start to introduce the idea that we're going to step into things that make them feel worried, oh my gosh, the kids that's when they start whispering in their parents' ears. Let's get out of here. Let's make a run for it. Yeah, yeah. They're whispering in their parents' ears saying like, I am not doing this. I am not doing, I hate this. I'm not doing this. If the parents can hang in there with me, and if we can expect that that's going to happen, if they recognize that this is a process they have to go through, they can do pretty well. When I'm working with teenagers, and we'll talk, one of the later puzzle pieces is how do we get kids to do this? But with teenagers, they have their own incentive because a lot of times the worry is getting in the way of the things that they want to do. As you're describing this, one of the things that I think must come up a lot is that parents have come to you because they recognize worry is inhibiting daily activities for their child and possibly the family too. Mm -hmm. Then you say these things, the parents themselves, if they don't understand their own worry, it's hard for them to want to dive into this as well. So I can see the parents pushing back also. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because they have been told that the goal is to get rid of their child's anxiety. A lot of them either through just doing what works intuitively, which is avoiding, or they've been told that this is what they should do. They've been told by other family members. They've been told by schools. They've been told by other practitioners that the goal is to keep their child from getting upset. Then they come and they see me and I will ask a question. I'll say at the beginning when I'm first meeting a family, I'll say, so tell me what you've learned so far because I want to know where their thinking is. And very often a family say, well, what we've learned is that if we make sure that everything goes as planned, that if we make sure this, that if we allow her to do this, that if we avoid this, then everything goes really well. And then I say, all right, brace yourselves right? Here we go. But I do find that when I explain it and when I really lay it out to say, look, here's how worry works. Here's how the worry sets off the amygdala. Here's how it becomes habitual. Here's why you did this because it works in the short term. But the reason you're in my office is that it doesn't work in the long term. 
and you're noticing that things are getting worse. So I think we're all on the same page is that what you've been doing isn't working in the long term and you need another approach. Let me explain to you how this works. And then generally people come around. Not all the time, of course, not all the time. And even when people understand it rationally in my office and then I'm sending them out in the world to do it, still takes a lot of courage and discomfort and there's a lot of tears and parents have a lot of doubt. And then they come back in, then they come back in and I say, so tell me what worked, tell me what didn't work, where did you succeed, where did it get really difficult? It's a process. I just think about a typical family coming to you, hitting this step, Mm -hmm. and when they have been intuitively avoiding conflict with their kid all this time and allowing anxiety to take a bigger and bigger hold... I can imagine the parents just having a difficult time going to this next step. They need a lot of encouragement from you. Yeah, they need a lot of encouragement. The thing about it, actually, that probably happens more often than not is there's a real sense of relief because this does make sense when I explain it. And what they've been doing isn't working and it's just been getting worse and worse. And they come in and they're feeling exhausted and hopeless and, oh my gosh, we've been trying to do this. And She's been sleeping in our bed and we can't get her to school or she won't leave the house or whatever dramatic circumstance has brought them to me. And so when I say, look, you know, with the best of intentions, the things that you've been doing haven't been working. If I say to a parent, I know exactly why this is getting worse and let me explain that to you. And I also have a plan that's going to be a little tricky and that's going to feel hard, but this is going to make sense to you also most people feel relief, right? I mean, there's the initial sort of like, oh crap. Most people say, gosh, why didn't anybody tell me this before? Why was I told that I have to make sure that she feels comfortable all the time when you're telling me that that's going to make this worse? I say, because that's sort of the standard approach for a lot of people that don't really know how this thing works. So there is often a lot of relief that they have a plan. Now, they may feel relief in my office and then it's time to go out and put it into practice out in the world and then suddenly they realize what they're up against. That's why I can imagine both parents being on this page makes it so much easier. So much easier, yeah. And also why, let me just say again, I don't work with kids alone. I don't work with kids alone. I don't work with kids alone. You know, you can imagine how much work it takes for the parents to shift this. I can't do this without the parents' involvement. I can't come up with this plan with a kid, even a teenager, and not have the parents absolutely know what I'm doing and play a prominent role in this. So it really makes no sense. This is why for years and years and years, I've been saying we cannot have this anxiety issue dealt with, with children and not have the adults, the loving, supportive, caring adults involved. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. It won't work. They can't do it. Yeah, they can't do it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. More and more people are getting used to that idea. It's not a new idea. I am a social worker. I was trained in systems. I was trained in how does all of this work together? That's the approach that we need to use with this. I'm going to repeat a mantra we've said in another episode. Yeah. Anxiety is a family problem but anxiety, it's a family solution. That's right. Yeah. Kids can't do this alone. Parents need support. They need encouragement. They need friends or other family members to support them in doing this because we're reversing a pattern. Change is hard when when you're changing a habit, when you're trying to do something differently. And anxiety doesn't give up easily. It doesn't say, okay, all right, it fights back. There needs to be a really, a really unified approach to this and a lot of love and a lot of encouragement. You know, I can give you a typical scenario, right? So I've got a person who's very socially anxious and so they're having difficulty talking in school. They won't raise their hand. Maybe they don't even want to go to school because it feels so hard for them. If they go into a restaurant, they won't order. The list goes on and on. And so then the homework assignment becomes, I want you to step into situations that will make your worry show up. So the goal for you 
is to make Sylvia show up. How could we do that? Right now, this is the exact opposite of what they've been told. We're going to find ways for you to make Sylvia show up. So maybe it's going into a CVS and asking somebody where the shampoo is. Maybe it's raising their hand in class, any kind of social interaction. And the goal is if I say to somebody who's very socially anxious, I expect you to feel calm and confident as you do this. Well, that's not going to work. But if my goal is I expect worry to show up, you're going to externalize it and we are going to step in on purpose. And here's the message that you're going to give your amygdala. Now, remember earlier I said we're going to add a little juice. Here's the juice. We are going to say, let's go, right? We're going to get you on offense instead of defense. We're going to say to the amygdala, I am stepping into this restaurant or I am making this phone call or I am raising my hand and we're going to act as if this is the best idea in the world. Is it a good idea? Yes. Does the worry think it's a good idea? No. But if we step into it very tentatively, oh gosh, I'm going to raise my hand. I hope it goes well. (laughs) If everybody is acting as if this is a really dangerous thing and oh my gosh, we have to be careful, the amygdala is going to say, I know this, I know this. But if we throw in this almost over the top, like, yeah, let's go for it, right? Let's step into this. Let's try this out. The amygdala says, well, that's a very different message. I have not heard that before. The amygdala learns through experience. We're giving it new data. So the reason we're doing it on purpose with volition, the reason we're making it a game, the reason we want you to step in and act as if this is the greatest idea in the world is because we want the amygdala to hear something different. You need to stop sending those danger messages through your prefrontal cortex. And that means that you're changing your perspective. You're giving the amygdala new information on what events are really threatening versus events that you can actually manage, right? That's what we're trying to do. That's what this is about. So what we want to do, we want to change the messages that the amygdala is getting. If you're a worrier, you need to retrain it. We're going to stop sending those unwarranted danger messages through your prefrontal cortex. This means we're changing your perspective on what events are really threatening events versus what are things that you can actually manage. And your amygdala needs a chance to figure that out. It needs to figure it out. When you're going to sleep, it may need to figure that out in a restaurant. It may need to figure that out on an airplane. It may need to figure that out on the playground. The amygdala needs an opportunity to figure it out. And what happens with anxious families is they step in. They talk about things as if they're emergencies. They respond as if they're emergencies. The amygdala learns that it's an emergency. It has a great big reaction. Everybody wants to avoid that. And so they keep giving the amygdala the same message over and over and over again. And that's how these patterns get so powerful. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk more about that. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. 
So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. Okay, we're back. Sometimes I always tell people listen to this episode, and if you've listened to it one time, it's not enough. Listen to it again. I think this one is really worth listening to again. Yeah. Well, because it's really is contrary to what people have heard. And it's challenging to step into something on purpose when you know that worry is going to show up, when every part of your body has learned, right? Because the amygdala activates so many systems in your body. The amygdala has told all of these systems this is dangerous. This is a crisis. It really takes practice. It takes exposure. It takes experience to lay down those new pathways in the brain. But it is really, really doable. I mean, that's what treatment is all about. And just so everybody knows this, when kids are given these tools, when you have a child who's dealing with anxiety and they're given these tools, there is an enormously high success rate in treatment. 80% of kids who get good treatment for this will no longer be ruled by their anxiety. 80%. That's a pretty good percentage. So it really does work. It's about consistency. It's about sticking with it. It's about giving your amygdala a chance to learn and changing those messages. And that's what a catastrophic parent has to really pay attention to the messages that have been passed down generationally. If you've got a family that lives in this emergent situation. Yeah. It sounds like it's a very hard step to initiate, especially after you've finally gotten the 8 to 13-year-old range of a child who was really just resistant to externalizing their worry, gone on to the next step, and you're doing this too. This is hard work, but it pays off. It pays off. It has a huge dramatic impact, I would assume, not just for the child, 
the adult is learning this too at the same time. Sure, because there aren't too many families that I see where the parents know all this and do all this, and they've done it for a long time, and they still have a kid that's really avoidant. Right. right? That doesn't happen. You know, that's just not the way that human beings work. It's not the way that families work. Maybe I said it too kindly, but I mean, that's sort of my point. If you're here and you're at this stage with your child, this can help you too. Yeah. And let me just say this. This is also preventative. So if you're here and you're at this stage with your child, this will help you. It will help your child. But start doing this as early as possible. There are all sorts of things growing up in life as kids are moving into the world that create worry, that feel uncertain. Worry is going to show up when we're doing new things, when unexpected things happen. And so as early as possible, if you've got this mindset and if you've got this approach that you are saying to your kids, this feels uncomfortable, but you can handle it. This feels uncertain, but there are problems that we can solve and ways we can manage it. If you normalize the fact that your heart pounds a little bit or your tummy feels twittery or all the other physical symptoms that we get, then kids recognize that it's okay to step into new things and to feel this way. That's the difference between kids that avoid and kids that don't, is that there's something new, there's something challenging, there's something anxiety-provoking, and they've been given the message consistently that it's okay for you to feel this way versus kids that have a strong reaction to things or parents that have a strong reaction to it. And the message is, you shouldn't feel this way. This is dangerous. This is an emergency and we need to avoid. That's what we can do preventatively is start giving kids this message. Of course you feel uncomfortable. And that way their amygdala isn't really learning from early on that new unexpected things are also emergencies because that's the connection that anxious people make. I had a funny experience with this recently. There was a message from my mother-in-law that she left on my answering machine. And I also have a sister-in-law that lives with her because she has Down syndrome. My husband wasn't home yet or else he would have answered the call. There's a message and she says, I have an emergency. That's how the message started. And I will cut to the chase. The emergency was that her daughter got a bug bite. And she wanted to go to the emergency room at 8.30 at night because there was a bug bite. She is catastrophic. She is a worrier. Everything that she can possibly make into a crisis becomes a crisis. It was a bug bite. Luckily, retired nurse that lives near her looked at the bug bite and told her that they didn't need to go to the emergency room. She was going to walk to the emergency room at 8.30 at night. This is how anxious people live. You're speechless. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about that story because there's ranges of everything. Like I consider myself a catastrophizer, Mm -hmm. but I don't let my anxiety sort of rule my life. Right. There's a difference between like coming up with, oh, this could be this, or this could be this, or this is a tick bite. And oh my gosh, we're going to deal with Lyme again for another time. There's a period of like doing that, Mm -hmm. which is like the game I would play in my head, but that would be it. It would stop. Right. But an anxious person who doesn't have the ability to externalize their worry and name it could just keep going and going and going. That's the thing. The worry is very good at convincing you that the emergency is real, right? So you might be able to recognize, you might say, oh, I'm worried about this, et cetera, et cetera. You don't then act on it. You don't then call me and say, oh my gosh, I have a mosquito bite. Can you drive to Boston with me because I need to go to the emergency room? Now that sounds like an extreme story, doesn't it? And it's a bug bite. But how many times do children react strongly to something that's not a crisis And yet we get sucked in and treat it as if it's a crisis. You know, it's interesting as you say this, because when parents are new parents and all sorts of weird things happen because you're a new parent, I mean, this is when a lot of these patterns, I think, can start taking hold. There's fertile ground in parenting to just freak out. Absolutely. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what'll happen. You don't know what is typical. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think about that a lot is we're wanting all this certainty about our growing babies and Mm -hmm. then our growing toddlers. But I think that it's an interesting thing to train yourself to say, when does this become an emergency in a rational place in your mind, Mm -hmm. right? To start that and to say that out loud and to hear even your kids say that and think that, well, what does make it an emergency or what doesn't? And then, I don't know, I could imagine having that conversation in front of my kids so that they would hear me say, this isn't an emergency yet because this would really need to happen. Or I don't know, is that positive role modeling? Yeah. We don't want to switch completely over to the other direction where we're not recognizing that things need to be taken care of. I called poison control twice in two days once because, and my husband was gone on a trip. Because on day one, my son ate rhododendron leaves and began foaming at the mouth. And so I looked it up, poisonous. And then the next day, I was taking wallpaper down and he picked up the wallpaper remover and he licked it. Twice in two days, I called one and said like, hey, he ate rhododendron leaves. And they like, oh, those actually are toxic. And then, but we didn't have to do anything. And then the next day, I called back and said like, he ate some wallpaper remover. And they were like, oh, no, no, that's just detergent. That's totally inert. Totally surprising. I didn't know. I reached out for help. I got information. Yeah. I mean, one of the things when you become a new parent, I say the reason that this gets so activated is they hand you the most incredible, powerful piece of content for worry that you can possibly imagine, right? And it's a process. That's why new parents, you know, my friend Christine and I always laugh. We say when you're watching a a brand new parent with their first baby, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, we just have to look away. Because you're looking at someone who's terrified. Yeah, you're looking at someone who's terrified and you know that they're going to learn through experience. But if you tend to be a worrier and if you were raised by a worrier and then they hand you this baby, then the worry can really take off for sure. It can really take off understandably. So that's why we need people around us that can help us. But it's okay to ask questions. This is not about ignoring things. This is not about saying that, Anytime a bad thing's happen, you're supposed to be like, oh, you know, that's fine. This is really about recognizing a pattern of worry getting promoted to a crisis. How do you and your family anticipate, talk about, activate a crisis mentality? And anxious kids, that's what they're doing. If you're lying in bed and you're imagining that you're going to get kidnapped, you are activating a crisis response in your body which then just feeds, right? So the goal is here is preventatively, and if you've got a child that worries, how do we help them differentiate between this is a problem we need to solve, this is a situation that feels difficult and feels uncomfortable, but we can handle it. And then certainly there are going to be times when there is an emergency and you need to take somebody to the emergency room, but it's not for a bug bite, right? You don't have to go to the emergency room for a bug bite, but when your son falls off his bike and breaks his arm, then you're going to go, right? Difference. But worry is scanning all the time. Worry is about hypervigilance, and it's about promoting things that are not an emergency into an emergency by catastrophizing, by imagining, feeling as if your job as a parent is to prevent anything bad from happening. You're giving the message that life is a crisis, life is an emergency. That's how this thing gets so powerful. All right, let me just wrap this up. Step one, we're going to expect worry to show up. Step two, we're going to externalize it. We're going to give it a name because that allows us to talk about it in a different way. Step three, on purpose, we're going to step into things that allow the worry to show up because we are retraining the amygdala. If you say to me, my child doesn't know what they're worried about, that's fine with me. I don't care about the content. They're worried about uncertainty. If you've got a kid who's got diagnostically, we say generalized anxiety disorder, they just worry about uncertainty. Life is full of opportunities for them and for you to coach them stepping into things on purpose that make them feel uncertain, talking through it, saying, okay, so now we're going to step into this situation. We're going to get on the airplane. We're going to go near the dog, whatever. Worry is going to show up. Hello, worry. Nice to see you. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to activate the amygdala. And you say to your amygdala, amygdala, we're working on this. Worry got you cranked up. False alarm. 
And the amygdala says, really? Oh, okay. So now I can turn off the juice a little bit. Yep. You can turn off the juice a little bit. So it's a process over and over again of stepping in and letting your child with your support, getting different responses and allowing the amygdala to relearn so that they have a greater tolerance for uncertainty and discomfort. That's the process. All right, so we're three pieces through this. We've got more to come. And I think Robin gave you some very good advice, listeners. If this is a new concept to you, or even if this is something you've been really struggling with, you're listening to this and going, what? Listen to this again. Repetition works. Also, just a little quick reminder. Remember, we've got our Orlando retreat coming up in September. The registration deadline is August 1st. We've got just a few more spots open if you want to work individually, privately with me, but we've got more spots than that open if you don't want to work private with me and just come and enjoy all of the things we have planned, including the workshops for the parents. So just check that out. Lazy rivers, water slides, complimentary kids club for ages four to 12 private fireworks dessert party. I mean, these are just some of the incredible things (laughs) that are going to be at this family retreat. Mm -hmm. And it's our last retreat of 2022. So we hope to have you there. Yeah. So join our Facebook community so you can ask Lynn a question and connect with our listeners. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.